Welcome to Windsor Christian Fellowship Church Podcast. Our church vision is to win generations to Christ, connect them to His master plan, empower them to succeed, and grow the kingdom of God. For other podcast resources or more information about Windsor Christian Fellowship, please visit us at www.wcf.ca. All right. Good morning, everybody. Well, we just want to thank Pastor Rick and Kathy again and the whole leadership team for inviting us to be part of your family this week. We are so excited about what God is going to do. We have about 400 plus intercessors back at home that are praying for us and really believing for an encounter with the Lord this week. How many of you want to encounter God this week with us? You don't really need another good message. You really need encounter. That's what we're hungry for. and We're believing God for that. So I want to pass out some notes now, if we can do that with the team. We uh, kind of joke at IHOP that our copyright is the right to copy, but it's true. So we want to give you these notes, and I'm going to kind of use them as a little bit of reference, but mostly if they bless you, you can take them, teach from them, take my name off, you can do whatever you want with them, as well as since we're only here for a week, we brought a number of different resources with us that are out in the hallway And you can check those out, and they all have free notes available with them, so you don't need to buy anything to download the notes, and you can use those and and be blessed by those, hopefully. Well, let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for what you're doing all across the earth today. Lord, that you're raising up a beautiful, glorious bride prepared for your son. God, we ask you that you would grant us eyes to see today, that we would have ears to hear what the Holy Spirit would say to us. God, empower us to respond to you. Thank you for the glorious invitation that you've given us to be partners in what you're doing in the earth. And I ask that you'd grant me a mouth to speak in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I want to start by just sharing a vision the Lord gave me in 1998. So I was saved in 1995. Uh, first one born again in my family. Three years later, I'm driving down the road in 1998 and I have an open vision. And in this vision, I see a circular platform. And on this platform, there was every nation, tribe and tongue dressed in their cultural clothing, using instruments that were native to their lands. And and I really remember specifically uh, some African nations having drums And having the privilege of being in Africa for a while, seeing drummers from Burundi. I mean, it really hit home how powerful it was to watch people in their own culture use instruments that were native to their lands and to minister to God with their own unique cultural sound. Not trying to copy some other nation, but being who it is that God created them to be. And as I watched these different nations begin to worship, what was coming out of their mouths and their instruments was not sound that I could hear, but it was light that was coming out. And the light was converging together in this hurricane of worship, and it went up to the throne of God. And the Lord just spoke to my heart, and he said, Corey, this is Malachi 1, verse 11. Malachi 1, 11 says, From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, my name shall be great among all the Gentiles. And this verse is actually a rebuke to Israel because Israel was called as the first nation to be a kingdom of priests to God, but they began despising 
their sacrifices and their offerings and the position of ministry that God gave them. And so the Lord was correcting them and saying, I'm going to go to all the Gentile nations and in every place, he says, incense, talking about prayer, and a pure offering of worship will arise to my name for my name will be great among all the nations. And so, you know, I said, Lord, I'm in. <laughs> Whatever that means. I mean, you know, the Lord invites you into things. He doesn't give you all the information until later. But I said, I'm in, whatever that, whatever that looks like. But it was the first glimpse I had into a corporate uh, worship and prayer movement that was gonna spread across all the nations of the earth. And back then I just belonged to a, a local Sunday congregation, had no idea how God was gonna pull off bringing forth this, this bride made in the image of God unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You know, a glorious church doing greater works than Jesus did. It says in John 14, verse 12, Unto the second coming. I'm like, God, this is bigger than me, but I say yes to it. So a few years later, um, we had the mayor of our city back then. I was living in northern Indiana. His name was Mayor Dave, and he uh, was a godly man in a political office experiencing pressure, you know, as you can imagine, trying to stand for the word of God in that kind of a, a sphere of influence. And he says, I need to get away. So we found a, a place in Kansas City that was going to minister to him and Spent a few days there, and so we get off the plane, and somebody says to me, are you here for the International House of Prayer? And I'm going, no, I've never even heard of the International House of Prayer. And I remember this vision, and, and I say, well, maybe I am here for the International House of Prayer. You know, what is it? And so they explain it to us, and night and day prayer ministry, going three years, they give us directions. We find our way to these welded together trailers in the backwoods of Missouri. I was so embarrassed that I brought the mayor of our city to this place and we, we wove our way through the hallway to this back room and it had, you know, I, I was a builder in those days, building homes and so I have an eye for detail and I saw the carpeting was buckled like this and it had roofing nails nailing the carpet down and now I'm really embarrassed. I'm thinking, where have we brought this guy, you know? And, and I see a 14-year-old girl. There wasn't even a worship team. And she's just ministering, singing. And I'm so embarrassed. I look over to Mayor Dave, imagining what he might be doing. And he's just standing there weeping. And I think, what is going on in this place? And so I sit down and I begin to listen to what this little girl's singing. And she's singing a simple chorus, Worthy is the Lamb. And she just begins to sing, Worthy is the Lamb. And she goes on for not just five or 10 or 15 or 20 minutes or 30 minutes or 35 minutes or 40 minutes. I looked at the clock 45 minutes later and this 14-year-old girl is still singing Worthy is the Lamb. And it's like every time she sang those words, they began to penetrate my heart in a deeper and deeper way to where I began to own those words and I began to see Jesus as the Worthy Lamb. And I began to sing to him as the Worthy Lamb. Now this morning, you know, the worship time was maybe 30, 45 minutes, whatever, the whole time. This one girl was singing this one chorus for 45 minutes, and I had never seen that before, and it dawns on me she's not doing it for my benefit, right? Because I'm really aware as a worship leader that part of our job as worship leaders is to engage the congregation and get them to behold Jesus and help usher them into a place of worship. She could care less that I was in the room. She had no idea I was in the room. This girl had ascended through a veil somewhere and was before a real throne with a real God and she was beholding the beauty of Jesus and she was ministering to him. And 
I had never seen authentic priestly ministry like God said he would do in Malachi 1.11. In every place, he was going to raise up a priestly people that would give him a pure offering of worship. I'd never seen it before, and the Lord spoke to my heart, and he said, Corey, this is Malachi 1.11. In every place, you know, in Missouri, in Indiana, in Windsor, Canada, in St. Kitt, I mean, every place, I'm going to raise up a kingdom of priests who come before me to minister to me, not because they want something from me, but because they love to be with me. And out of the overflow of ministering to my heart, they're going to go forth in the earth and do all the works of the kingdom. Heal the sick, raise the dead, preach the gospel, cast out demons. And so again, I said, Lord, I'm in. <laughs> you know, whatever that looks like, I'm in. So we go back to northern Indiana. We get a garage. How many you know great things start in garages? 16 people, four hours a week. That's all we had grace to do back then. And we began to learn how to minister to God without an agenda. The Lord so loved our sincerity, even in our weakness, that he began to breathe upon that little community in northern Indiana. And he multiplied it to over 300 people in about five months. And we were able to, by the grace of God, minister to the Lord 24 hours a day, seven days a week for over five years. Then in 2007, the Lord moved my wife and I down to Kansas City, where we have the privilege of bringing in nations, you know, all across the earth to equip them to encounter God using the word of God. How many of you know that this walk is about not just memorizing facts about God, but we've been given this written word to encounter the living word of God. And he's a person, right? This is a doorway, <laughs> When I open the pages of this book, I'm looking for the man between these lines. This book is way deeper than it is wide. And so we get to equip the nations to encounter God and then to go back. I mean, we have a burden to see the church make a real impact and be relevant in their own communities with their own sound, right? The way that God originally intended for it to be. And so in the last few years, the Lord has been sending our Ignite team out. And it's, again, such a privilege that we get to go to Germany and Singapore and Brazil and Colombia and many different places. Next month or in April, we're going to be in Puerto Rico to come alongside the labor that has been going on in these different cities for decades and to come in to encourage, to come alongside and strengthen and to help launch and establish new houses of prayer. And so this week, I want to invite you, if you can come you know, even if it's for one day or if you can come for the whole week, I want to invite you to come to this Ignite Week because we're going to encounter the Lord together and we're going to minister to the Lord together and we're going to believe God to make a real impact, again, alongside decades of prayer that's been going on here. But we said, Lord, we're into it. And, uh, and so the Lord has been graciously giving us opportunities to see what he's doing in the nations. And I don't know if you're aware, but we are in the greatest move of God the world has ever seen and it's happening right now. Regardless of what CNN says, sorry, can I say that? <laughs> Regardless of what the news agencies say, I've got a more sure word of news. We are in the greatest move of God the world has ever seen, and it's not going to go backwards. This move that we're witnessing right now across all the nations will culminate with a resurrected Jewish king coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he's not coming back to have border negotiations in the Middle East. Beloved, he's taking over not only all of Israel, but he's taking over the entire earth. 
for his glory. And he is the king above all kings. And he's preparing the earth for an invasion from on high. And he's raising up his people to know who we are as a kingdom of priests in unity with him. I mean, we are, we're in an internship right now. We get to learn what the kingdom's all about. But the good news is there's no practice in the kingdom, right? There's no practice. Our prayers and our worship really matters right now. And so just to give you a couple statistics for fun, back in 1984, there were only 25 day and night prayer centers in the earth. That's all we could find, 25. Today, there's well over 10,000 24-7 night and day prayer centers throughout the earth. Let me give you another stat that'll even blow your mind more. I've got a friend, his name's Mark Anderson. He's one of the senior leaders at Youth with a Mission. Anybody hear of YWAM before? Okay. He's one of the senior leaders there. He's also one of the senior leaders at IHOP with us in Kansas City. He's one of those very unique men that have his, his influence in both the prayer movement and the missions movement, which have always been in God's heart and mind one movement. But he has this initiative called the Call to All, and it was meant to gather the largest prayer organizations alongside the largest mission organizations for the purpose of strategizing how we could take the gospel to all 4,000 geopolitical zones in the earth by 2020. The gospel would be preached, and in the wake of the missions that would go forth, they weren't going to leave behind a traditional Sunday-only church. They wanted to teach the nations how to minister to God in houses, a house of prayer style ministry. Whether it's two hours a week or it's 168, it didn't matter. But they were going to establish prayer watches and empower the people of God to begin to minister to the Lord in worship and prayer. And then out of the overflow of ministry to God, they were going to go out and do all the works of the kingdom. And he has very conservative commitments, okay, for by 2020, this is only two and a half years away, in the wake of their initiative to leave behind 1.5 million prayer watches by 2020. Can you imagine how that is going to shift the spiritual atmosphere across the earth when you've got 1.5 million and then again, this is only one initiative. There's 10,000 things God's doing playing 12-dimensional chess. Can you imagine what's going to happen when the people of God begin to walk in their true identity and calling as being a kingdom of priests who know the heart and the mind of God because we've got access to it, and then we take his promises and we begin to contend on the earth for God to break it in power until we see it manifest in our day and our time. Beloved, we have been invited into something so much bigger, so much greater, so much grander. I mean, what an indescribable privilege to partner with the eternal Godhead to establish his kingdom on the earth as it is in heaven. I wouldn't want any other job. Well, I want you to just to turn to your notes for a minute because... This victorious church that God's raising up, like every great move of God, will come forth in the context of great pressure. I want you to think of a diamond. Diamonds are not formed because they just suddenly appear on the ground. God can take coal and under tremendous pressure and heat over a long period of time, he can turn coal into a magnificent, brilliant diamond and he's doing the same thing with each one of us. And he's doing the same thing with the church in the earth. I want to take us to Matthew 24, where I want to begin. Because Matthew 24, 
It's where Jesus is walking through the temple complex with his disciples, and they're, in essence, they're bragging to him about, you know, what they've done for God. They're saying, look at the temple, look at all that we've done, and, you know, in typical Jesus fashion, he says something confusing and shocking and surprising, and then he drops his microphone and walks away and leaves them in their own confusion. He says, he says this, they, they ask him, what are these things going to be, Lord? He says this to them. They're, they're bragging about the temple complex, and Jesus says this. He says, guys, do you see all these stones? Not one of these stones will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. And then he walks off, and they're going, Lord, we built this for you. I mean, why would you destroy the temple that we made for the glory of God? And so they sneak off later, and they ask Jesus, when will these things be, and what will be the signs of your coming and the end of the age? And so Jesus, in Matthew 24... And the parallel passage is also in Mark 13 and Luke 21. So one of the things I love about the Gospels is that not any one Gospel writer had all the insight into the person of Jesus. It took Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to weave together this beautiful tapestry of the person of Jesus. So you put together Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21 to get the full dialogue. But this is what Jesus says to him in return. He says, take heed that no one deceives you. Now, we should pay attention. That's the first thing that Jesus said to them. He says, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name and will deceive many. Now, beloved, when Jesus says there's going to be many deceivers that come in his name, does that mean they're going to come as Hindus or Buddhists? No, that means he's talking about the people of God, Christians. They're going to call themselves Christians. And there'll be many deceivers that name the name of Christ and will deceive many. This is one of the first signs that he talks about. Then he goes on to say, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famine, there'll be pestilence, there'll be earthquakes. Then he says this very interesting thing in verse 8. All of these things, there's 18 trends that he gives in total. All of these things are the beginnings of sorrows, which the Greek word literally means birth pangs or contractions, okay? How many moms do I have in here? Okay, you know what he's talking about, right? Jesus didn't use this by accident. He's saying when the contractions begin, they're going to increase. They're going to shrink in their duration, but they're going to increase in their severity as well until there's a birth. And what he is going to bring forth is two things, the Bible says. Isaiah 66 talks about there will be the first all-born-again nation in the earth, and it'll be the nation of Israel. The second thing that will be given birth through this crisis and trauma of contractions will be the earth will literally groan under earthquakes and these disturbances until it gives birth to the millennial kingdom, which we want the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom is the next age when Jesus will rule the nations from his throne of glory in the city of Jerusalem, the city of the great king. And we, as his eternal partners, will rule the nations with him. And of course, you know, in the kingdom rule means serve right? We get to serve the nations from the new Jerusalem, the city in the sky in the age to come. Well, I'll never forget, you know, I've got two beautiful girls. One is 18 and she is in Uganda right now serving in a refugee camp of 6 million people in northern Uganda. And I've got a second little girl named Justice and she's down the hallway playing in an amazing jungle gym or whatever's down there. 
So kind of similar, but 13-year gap between the two, and that's another story for another day. But I'll never forget when Justice was born. The night that Justice was born, Meredith says to me, she says, you know, I think I'm having contractions, like what Jesus described here in these, these events. And I said, well, you know, you've done this before. How could you not know what they're like? And she says, well, you know, it's been 13 years. I mean, uh, I think this is them, but I'm not quite sure. And, and so, like a good husband, you know, I said, well, I'm going to bed. And uh, if this is the real thing, then just wake me up. You know, we'll get you to the hospital right away. So sure enough, two in the morning, she wakes me up. This is that. This is that. We hop in the car, head down to the hospital. And in 59 minutes, our second daughter, Justice, was born. It was a beautiful thing. And, you know, because of unfamiliarity with what contractions feel like for either new mothers or moms that haven't had a child in 13 years, by the time you realize you're having them, you've already been having them for some time. I wonder, is it because we've never gone this way before, are we right in the middle of the very birth pang signs that Jesus gave us, and we're not recognizing as a church, this is that. These are the very signs that Jesus gave us that were universal. They're happening all over the earth. They are discernible because they can't be a sign if you can't discern what they are. And they're simultaneous. They're all happening at the same time. Could we be right in the middle of the very signs Jesus gave to awaken the church to the reality that his coming is right around the corner? And could we be asleep in the midst of the greatest hour of human history? I wonder. Well, in the midst of Meredith giving birth, there's another story I want to tell. <laughs> she loves it when I tell all these birth stories. I'll never forget when she gets to the point where she says, again, moms, you can relate. This baby needs to come out now. <laughs> and I said, yes, ma'am. I prayed a little harder. She pushes at a time there was no contraction. And, you know, nothing happened. And I'll never forget the nurse saying to Meredith, Meredith, the contractions are there to help you. Right? Wait until the next contraction and then push with all your might. And so we're watching on the monitor and you can see the contraction coming, the waves growing, right? She pushes that next contraction and guess what? Justice was born. And God began to speak to me about the end times. He says, Corey, these birth pain contractions that I gave in Matthew 24, they're not against the church. They're actually there to help the church. Beloved, so many of the people of God are afraid of what they think they might find about the end times if they ever read about the end times, not realizing that God has prepared for us the, in, the optimum environment of pressure so that the church will be seen as relevant, the church will be seen as the only life-giving source on the earth. These contractions are not against us. They're actually there to help us birth in intercession, like eschatological midwives. Let's just say it that way. To birth not only the nation of Israel, but to partner with Jesus in birthing the next age called the millennial kingdom. We can't shrink back from this stuff. We need to study it. Well, Roman numeral two, as in the days of Noah, it's interesting because Jesus also likened the decades preceding his coming to the days of Noah. And so I spent you know, a good six months or so studying all the similarities between Noah's day, Genesis 6 through 10, to the end of the age and what we know will occur based on what Jesus said and what the prophets said. 
and the book of Revelation. And you would think, well, maybe there's a half a dozen similarities. Guys, there's like 60, 70, 80. I never counted it, but there's so many similarities. And so he, he says, with reason, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. And so I just listed five things there for you, although I could list many. Number one, there's the global corruption. You know, in Noah's day, it says this, Genesis 6, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. I mean, man, it couldn't get any worse than that. And at the end of the age, we see the same trend emerging where wickedness will go to heights that Daniel chapter 8, verse 23 say, wickedness will become fully ripe. I mean, it's a terrifying description. Secondly, though, God has not left us without insight, direction. It says, number two, divine forewarning. In the midst of that situation on the earth, God gave Noah a divine forewarning of an unprecedented, future, imminent, global shaking that God would create. And it was given to Noah and it was proclaimed through Noah for decades. I mean, we get discouraged when the promises of God don't come to pass after a couple months, right? Noah received the insight from God that water was going to come out of the sky and it was time to prepare an ark for the saving of all those with ears to hear. And he began to proclaim that as a preacher of righteousness, the Bible says, not for 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 or 100 or 110, but 120 years this man faithfully built and proclaimed for all those with ears to hear, get into this ark of safety because water's coming out of the sky. Now, just to give you a little insight into how ridiculous that message would have been, it had never rained in Noah's day before. I mean, imagine Shem, Ham, and Jepheth on Bring Your Dad to School Day. I mean, think of how embarrassed they would have been, you know, you know, little Johnny, what's your dad do? Oh, he's a farmer. Shem, what's your dad do? Oh, he's that guy in the wilderness building an ark for rain to come out of the sky. I mean, they're going, Shem, we've all known since second grade, water doesn't go up in the air. It comes up from the ground and waters the earth. How is God going to get water up in the air? It'll never happen, right? Think of it in our day in terms of this. Prior to the invention of air flight, an airplane, it would be like us proclaiming to the world, you really need this parachute. You really are going to want this parachute. Not now, but about 120 years from now, you're going to want this parachute. It would be a parachute back in the day of just automobiles would have been the most ridiculous message ever. Nobody would have listened to it. But in the day that airplanes begin to fly and you needed that parachute, beloved, that would be the most relevant thing that you could have on hand was a parachute. In the same way, right now, God has given us sufficient information of a coming global shaking that is imminent and it's right around the corner at Jesus' return and we are proclaiming, get the parachute. We're proclaiming, get in the ark of safety. We're proclaiming there is a church with a message that has the only truth for salvation. And right now, though 
our message of, of Jesus has been relevant throughout all ages. It will be particularly relevant when these events begin to come to pass. God's going to use those contractions to shove the church, just like the ark, to the surface of those waters, and we will be a lighthouse in the darkest day. We will be an ark of safety in the highest waters. We will have the only message of salvation in that hour, and men and women are going to flock to the Jesus, the desire of all nations in that hour. Well, look at number five there, delayed vindication. One other similarity is that the wisdom of preparation by faith is only apparent after the activities for which you began, or, or for which you prepared to begin. In other words, Noah looked like the greatest fool of all time, building an ark in the wilderness with no water until the rain began. Suddenly, all that scoffed on him saw Noah as the wisest man on the planet. And I have to say to you, many of you are shifting your lifestyles, how you spend your money, the friends you hang around, the way you give your time for something that we have not yet seen yet. You're preparing for something that's coming. And in that hour, the wisdom of preparation by faith will be openly seen, although right now it may not be that apparent. Well, just like God gave Noah these divine blueprints, he's given the church divine blueprints to build an ark of safety. And I want to give you just a few of the points of them on page two. Jesus has not left the church without a blueprint to build from. I like to call it the eternal identity, occupation, and order of the church. It's always been there. But in the fullness of time, he is going to bring forth a glorious church according to this blueprint. Paragraph A, it's a big sentence. I'll read it and then I'll break it down for you. It says, prior to the return of Jesus, the church that he is building, okay, not the one man's building. Sometimes they're two different things. The church that Jesus is building will emerge as a mature bride in identity who eternally functions as a kingdom of priests in the house of prayer according to the Davidic order. And I'll break each one down. Let me read it again. The church that Jesus is building will emerge as a mature bride in identity who eternally functions as a kingdom of priests in the house of prayer according to a very specific order. It's called the Davidic order. Now, when we talk about the church, we know we're not talking about buildings, right? We're talking about people. And Jesus describes through Peter the people of God as living stones, you and I being fit together. But look at what he describes as being fit together as. He says, being fit together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You know, I've said this before, and I'm so serious about it. I don't want another revival. I'm not looking for another revival. And what I mean by revival is when God shows himself, a few people are healed, a few people are saved, a few people are delivered, and then God's presence lifts. And though I'm thankful for the salvations and the healing and the deliverance, Beloved, I want the people of God, I want us to be in such dynamic unity with the order of heaven that God doesn't just come and then go back away and say, I'm going to wait till, you know, a few more decades and then come and visit you again. That God could come and he could dwell, he could rest in the midst of the people of God. This is what David was after. Psalm 132, you know, when he caught a glimpse, David caught a glimpse of the tabernacle in the heavens. First Chronicles chapter 28 verses 11 through 19. Sorry, I'll just throw that out there. You can read it later. David saw the temple in heaven. He saw the courses of the priests in heaven ministering to God on his throne. He saw the instruments of heaven. 
I mean, do you know that there's harps in heaven? Trumpets in heaven. Guys, drums is not of the devil. God is infinitely creative. He saw these things, and that's why he made so many instruments. He saw how they ministered to God. He vowed in Psalm 132, he said, I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I establish a dwelling place for God on the earth like I saw in the heavens. And for the 33 years that David's tabernacle stood, they ministered to God, to his manifest presence with prophetic music and singing, and Israel was victorious over all of her enemies in that day. But whenever they would fall away from that Davidic order, they would immediately be taken over by the surrounding enemies, and God would have to raise up another reformer. Well, the Lord prophesied about raising up this order again at the end of the age. And he is going for a dwelling place of God where his presence abide, where unbelievers come into the room and they run into a wall of God, right? I mean, I've been in meetings before and I'm sure you have too, but let's just encourage one another. Where we're ministering to the Lord in the house of prayer and somebody came in with scoliosis, they sat down in the seats, nobody laid hands on them. After about a half hour, this woman sprung up in her seat screaming like she was on fire and she was saying, I'm healed. I'm healed. God straightened her spine. She grew about two inches that day. It's amazing. Well, we're looking for a dwelling place of God. So the Lord is going to take his church and he's going to raise up a bride in identity. Now, we're always going to be sons and daughters related to the Father, for sure. And we're never going to exhaust the treasury of the knowledge of who we are as sons and daughters related to the Father. But our, our most mysterious identity in the grace of God is that we are a bride related to the second person of the Godhead, Jesus. And he's going to take Jews and Gentiles out of every tribe and tongue, and he's going to mature them into his very image, and he's going to raise up a corporate bride in the earth. How many guys just got excited? <laughs> I was so discouraged and depressed when I first heard the bride of Christ message. I was like, oh, Lord, no. Please don't tell me I have to wear a wedding dress and like light candles when I pray and... No, we just remove that. This isn't about gender. Just like in the kingdom, men and women are both sons of God related to accessing God's throne, his kingdom, his power, his authority, okay? In the same way, both men and women are the bride of Christ related to accessing his heart, his emotions, his affections, his delight, and in the same way that a bride in the natural is the only one that has intimate access to the deepest things of her husband's heart, so God is raising up in the earth a bride for his son that has open access to the deepest things in his heart and in his mind. Well, paragraph D, not only will we be a bride in identity, but Jesus said, my house is a house of prayer. He didn't say my house is a house of silence, Right? He didn't say, my house is a house of evangelism, although we evangelize. He didn't say, my house is a house of prophecy, though, man, I love prophecy. He said, my house, which the same word means household, or you could say family, it's the exact same word. My family, my corporate bride, she is a house of prayer. In other words, out of all the things that we do, the thing that would most characterize the bride that has access to his heart is that she would take the things of his heart, his plans, and she would contend in fervent intercession until his will is done on the earth as it is in heaven. He said, that's what my family's gonna do. This describes, again, not our identity, but what we do in our eternal occupation 
as a kingdom of priests who minister to God by agreeing with who he is in worship. You know, when we say you're holy, you're beautiful, we're agreeing with his person and agreeing with what his plans are in prayer. When we say, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're simply agreeing with what he said he already wanted done. So this priestly ministry of agreement is what we will do for all eternity. It's the way it's always been done in the kingdom, and it's the way it always will be done. You know, apostles, prophets will pass away, but our priestly ministry, right, the, the ministry, the priestly ministry of all believers will never pass away because the priestly ministry of agreement is the primary way that God has always released his governmental power. I'll give you an example. We go back to Genesis 1. The father has had the dream of the heavens and the earth in his heart for eternity. I mean, it's always been there. And the Spirit was brooding on the waters. We don't know how long the Holy Spirit was waiting. But we do know this. Nothing was created until Jesus, the great intercessor, the great high priest, took his place and spoke the Father's plans out of his mouth. And the minute that the priest said, let there be light, the Holy Spirit released the power of God and created light. And the same thing is true today. In fact, you know, Jesus won't even return without a priestly kingdom on the earth contending for his return. I mean, I want to take you right to, to Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. You probably all know it by, by heart already. The spirit and the bride, right? So the Holy Spirit and the corporate bride of Christ on the earth are in perfect unity. The spirit and the bride, what is she saying? Come. You could do it, say it this way. She's praying. She's interceding. It's the bride in identity contending as a house of prayer. Come. But she's not just contending for him to come. On the same verse, she's contending for all those who have not yet drank of the river of the water of life to come and drink freely. So it's a call for him to come from the sky, and it's an evangelistic call to the nations of the earth, come and drink. Both are going to happen at the same period of time. As we release faith-filled words of agreement to God, he responds by releasing his governmental power in the earth. I mean, think of 2 Chronicles 7, 14. What does it say? If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray, because it takes humility to pray, right? The older I get, the more I figure that out. When I feel strong in my flesh, you know, I forget to pray that moment. But the older I get, the weaker I know that I am, the more I pray. God, if my people would humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. What does he say he would do? Hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Guys, he wants to break into geographic regions and begin to touch the land. We'll talk a lot more about this this week, but we had the president of Fiji come visit IHOP some years back. You know, you would think it would pack out the whole place. Like 30 people showed up to hear the president of Fiji. And he came to talk to us about the revival that was going on in Fiji at the time. He said that there was a, the islands were filled with witchcraft. The islands were filled with drunkenness and immorality, idolatry. There was a dead coral reef. Women were barren. Fruit would not grow. There was a famine in the land. And he said the pastors finally got so sick and tired of it, they gathered together according to 2 Chronicles 7, 14, took up the priestly call, and they began to cry out to God to break in and heal their land. Take him at his word. He describes seeing a lightning bolt from heaven come down and strike a dead coral reef, and he brought the whole thing back to life again. I mean, that does not happen. 
Fire from heaven hit a coral reef and brought it back to life. It was such a powerful resurrection that a new species of fish was birthed and National Geographic documented it. He talked to me about a village who repented and they had poison water running through their village. And so uh, the women were losing their children prematurely and they couldn't uh, keep their children. And, and so they began to cry out to God and the Lord actually touched and healed their waters. But here's the miracle is that upstream, when the scientists tested it, it was still polluted. And downstream, it was still polluted. It was only within the boundaries of this village that came into agreement with heaven that the waters were absolutely pure and clean. I'll tell you one more. I mean, I could tell you stories all day, but for the sake of time, let me just tell you one more. The village of Nuku, Fijian Island still, N-U-K-U, you can look it up online. These guys, they knew nothing but harvesting marijuana. This was their livelihood. That's all they'd ever done. Revival breaks out in their islands. They repent. They give their hearts to the Lord. Immediately he deals with the drugs and they say, okay, we're going to stop it. We're going to cut it all down. They pile it all up in the middle of the village and they burn it. But they don't inhale, so don't worry. <laughs> but now they're worried because they, they don't know what to do. This is all they've ever known. They don't know a trade. It's not like they had, you know, all this skill that now they can turn to doing computers or something. They're like, God, what do we do? Within weeks, they found the largest deposit of gold in the whole region underneath their village. Guys, this is just another example of when we as the priests come before God and contend for his will to be done on the earth, he can transform cities. He can transform regions. What about Windsor? Why not here? I mean, I don't know about you, but it's not right that not 100% of all of our families aren't saved and serving Jesus. It's not right that our young people are being caught up in drugs and immorality. It's not right that our men are losing their jobs. Guys, God has something so much greater for us if we would just come into agreement and begin to believe him, but more than believe him that we would begin to put his word in our mouths and declare, let there be light in agreement with heaven. Light over our families, over our regions. I believe God wants to raise up this region as a, a lampstand ministry that would bring light to many throughout Canada. Amen. I mean, what an indescribable position of privilege that angels can't even cross. I mean, listen to me. We look at angels and, and we're in awe of them, and rightly so in their body compared to our body. But there is no precedent for any angel in any part of Scripture asking God for anything and getting an answer. We have been given access to know his heart and his mind and put his word in our mouth, and then when we pray, he answers. They don't get to intercede. We do. From the very beginning, God has ordained that humans created in his image would advance his kingdom and his will through weak words spoken in faith. And the mystery of intercession is that it's released through the simplicity of agreement. I mean, I think of it like this. My volume, I mean, I like to shout. Obviously, you get that. But my volume doesn't make God hear me any better. Right? Um, my eloquence of speech doesn't make God hear me any better. My talent, if I was a talented singer, it doesn't manipulate God to answer me more than the guy that sings off key. I mean, we like it when people sing on key. <laughs> I really like it when people sing. That helps me engage, but it doesn't help God engage. You know that I could sing off key 
in agreement with God's will and he would still answer in power? Beloved, this is his brilliant way of including the entire body of Christ, which mostly sings off key, into dynamic partnership with him. This is good news for people like me. He wants to include us all and not just the old guys. He wants the, the children involved. He wants the babies involved. Joel chapter two, he said, bring the elders, gather them to the house of prayer, right? But also the children and the nursing babies and not just prayer and just songs in a sterile way. He wants to release the creativity of all the arts. I'm talking about dance and music and singing, art. and I mean, the whole deal, writing, prophetic writing. Well, turn to page three. It's a few more minutes. I want to touch on the Davidic order. So our identity, again, this is the blueprint for the church that Jesus is preparing for the greatest hour of human history. Though the message has always been relevant, the church hasn't always looked relevant. But in this hour of crisis, the church will be displayed as relevant. The church will be seen as the only answer in an hour of darkness by God's design. And our identity will come forth as a bride so that we feel secure in his love. We know who we are as a delighted in bride. We don't have to perform for his love. It's freely given to us. We're secure in our identity, which means that we can get along in our different giftings. And I'm not trying to compete with you. I want to champion your gift because I'm not called to be you. I realize I've got a place in the kingdom that nobody can take because it's mine. And if I don't step into it, nobody else will. But not only our identity, it's our eternal function as a kingdom of priests. We are going to have access to his heart and his mind as a bride. We're going to take those plans and we're going to contend as a kingdom of priests. Kingdom of priests. That speaks of government. I want you to shift your thinking from worship and prayer being a cool service to worship and prayer as the means God releases his governmental power. We sing and pray in agreement with his will. He releases government on the earth. I mean, we pray for governmental leaders and we should. But I've got to tell you, there is no higher governmental authority on the earth than the intercessors connected to that throne in heaven. You are the governmental leaders of the earth. And God is going to release that revelation to us in increasing measure so that we begin to actually take our authority and we use it. And we're going to use it according to a very specific order. Paragraph E, the Davidic order. The Lord said, I'm going to raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And he says, I'm going to rebuild it as in the days of old. And so we're going to look at the tabernacle of David a lot this week. But briefly, I'll just summarize it by saying, David took the Ark of the Covenant, which had the manifest Shekinah glory of God between the cherubim. I mean, man, can you imagine? It's the footstool of the throne of God in the heavens. It was on the earth. He put it in a tent. He surrounded it with 4,000 musicians. How many musicians do I have in the room? Just raise your hand up. You know how hard it is to get like four or five musicians in agreement? Imagine David's job of trying to rally 4,000 musicians, 288 singers, to minister to God by course. They had songs that were fueled by the beauty of God. In other words, they didn't sing to each other about each other. They sang to God about the beauty of God. And in that place, they were transformed to think more like him and feel more like him. Prophetic music and singing. And this was the primary catalyst. It will be for world missions. I'll show you that. Look at paragraph two there. Now, have you guys ever 
studied, I don't imagine you have, so I'll just throw it out there, the seraphim. It's the, the four creatures around the throne of God in the heavens. It's the, they're very strange creatures. One had the face of a man, another one with the ox, the other one with a flying eagle, the other one with the face of a lion. They had six wings. They had eyes in front, in back, around, within. I mean, can you imagine if one of those guys showed up in your bedroom late at night? Freak you out. These creatures are the highest ranking angels that we know about in the Bible, and their sole job, they were created uniquely to behold, with all those eyes, to behold the beauty of God, to drink in God's beauty, and then they declare with power what they see about God. And when they release the revelation of what they see, it incites worship into the rest of heaven. The elders fall down and cast their crowns. Other angels shout holy. Beloved, I've got good news for you. Those angels are only holding our place until the bride of Christ on the earth matures into her primary governmental role of beholding his beauty and declaring his glory to the rest of the created order. Yeah. This is what we get to do. And here's the deal. They can only behold the external beauty of God. They can only behold what he does in his mercy towards other human beings. You know, they've never received mercy. Right? When an angel sins, they don't get to ask for forgiveness and be washed in the blood of Jesus. When an angel sins, they are cast immediately out of heaven like Satan and all of his fallen angels. So they behold the mercy of God given to animated dirt. That's me and you. Right? God took dirt and he animated it, brought it to life. And when we sin, right, and we ask for forgiveness, they behold, wow, the mercy of God towards animated dirt. How does he do that? That's amazing. Think of the conversations they've had about that. But, and their worship is amazing. But how much more spectacular should our worship be when we're not singing about what we observe about God, but we're singing about what we've experienced about God? I've received mercy, therefore I can sing about it. I've experienced his faithfulness. I've experienced his goodness. Beloved, this is what God is waiting for. Will, you know, we're waiting for God. When are you going to come? When are you going to come? I, I think the conversation in heaven's a little different. He might be thinking, well, church, when are you going to rise up and start walking in your calling? When are you going to rise up as the bride that I'm wooing you into? And you begin to declare my beauty from the earth. And here's the good news. Haggai chapter 2, I didn't get to it earlier, but I'll just quote it. The Lord says, I will shake the heavens, the earth, the sea, the dry land. I will shake all nations. He's going to shake everything that can be shaken to remove those things that are worthless. And this is what the shaking produces. It says they, the nations, will come to the desire of all nations, which is the person of Jesus. And in between the shaking and the coming, there is a church standing in the gap, contending and declaring and singing about the beauty of Jesus. Isaiah 24 picks it up and he says, we have heard songs from the ends of the earth, Glory to the righteous one. Beloved, this is the place that he's ordained us to stand. And a key to understanding this Davidic order is that it's a governmental movement that uses worship and prayer as the means to bring in the great harvest. How many of you believe that there is a great harvest of souls that God wants to bring in? Across all the nations of the earth. I mean, he sees in Revelation 7, every tribe and tongue standing before the Lamb, singing salvation belongs to our God. We get to participate in that. Look under paragraph 3, it says this. Amos 9, 11. Again, I'm going to rebuild 
the tabernacle of David is in the days of old, verse 12, this is the reason, you guys, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. In other words, when we begin to function according to this Davidic order, God is going to bring in the great harvest of souls that we have been believing for. But I want you to notice that he zeroes in on the remnant of Edom. Now, everybody outside of being Jewish is a Gentile, right? So he says, they're going to possess all the Gentiles, and then he goes, and they're going to possess the remnant of Edom. So Lord, why would you focus in on the remnant of Edom? Well, if you study the boundaries of ancient Edom, you'll find that it's southern Jordan. And who possesses southern Jordan today is some of the most radical, hostile Islamic villages. And the Lord, way back in Amos Day, 750 B.C., puts his finger on radical Islam, and he says, I have got an answer at the end of the age for one of the greatest threats to the church, and that is when my church begins to sing and declare who I am in my beauty and in my glory, I will not only bring in all the Gentiles into the kingdom, but I'm specifically going to put my gaze upon the sons of Esau, the sons of Ishmael, because he loves them. And I'm going to bring them into my tabernacle as well. And they're not going to run into a wall of religion. They're going to run into me. They're going to run into God. And I want you to notice a few verses later. Amos, again, I'm just quoting Amos 9. 11, 12, I just quoted. Jump to verse 14 and 15. This is what he says. He links the restoration of this Davidic order in the earth and the acceleration of all the Gentiles coming in to the year in which, the generation in which Israel was reestablished in her land. Israel was reestablished in 1948. Look at what he says here in Amos 9:14. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel, and I'll plant them in their land. No longer shall they be pulled up from the land in which I've given them. I want you to see what he is saying here. He's saying, when I begin to restore the Davidic order on a global scale that will be discernible to my people, the church, and when the great harvest starts coming in, it's going to start to happen in an unprecedented way in the generation Israel is restored to her land. Guys, that happened in 1948. Israel restored in our generation, which means we are the generation God is restoring the Davidic order to the church. We are the generation that's going to see the great harvest come in. Now, how many of you want to be a part of that? Okay, all two of you. No, I'm just teasing you. Guys, we're in. I just want to invite you to stand for a minute. Is it okay if I pray for everybody? Then I'll turn it back over to you. This is what we're about. This is what we're called to. I wouldn't want to do any other thing with my life. I want to encourage you, if you have time to come this week, join us for a day, join us for an hour, join us for the whole week if you can. It would be worth it, taking off your work for a week. Honestly, it would be. Father, I thank you for what you're doing in the earth. Thank you, God, that we live in unprecedented times. We could have been born in the dark ages, but you chose, Lord, for us to step out into time in this hour of human history. All of our days were written in your book. The works that you prepared before us have been written down. And God, I ask for every heart in the room that you would connect us to the storyline of heaven, that we would see ourselves as being relevant in this hour, being called, chosen, God, and find us faithful. So I ask right now for an impartation of grace upon every heart. Lord, that you would divinely align us in this season, in the season of taking the promises that you've spoken over Windsor and over this ministry and over these families and causing them to come to pass in rapid succession. God, align us with your will that we would see the goodness of the Lord in our hour.
I just want to ask you to talk to him for a minute. What is it that you're asking the Lord to do for you in this? I mean, is it enough to just to kind of hear a cool story and be like, yeah, God's doing that? Or do you actually want to be a part of it? I just want to ask you, if you're in the room and you say, you know what, I see it in the Bible. Maybe you've never saw it before, but you're in the room and you're going, you know what, like I did when I saw Malachi 1.11 that first time. I didn't have a clue how that would play itself out, but I said, Lord, I'm in. If that's you and you say, you know what, I want to be a part of this storyline, I just want to invite you to raise your hand. Wow. Now I want you to look around at all the hands raised. What would happen to Windsor? What would happen to Windsor if we actually began to function according to this Davidic order in the house of prayer together? What would happen if we set aside time weekly to come together in unity and to sing his praise with understanding and to contend for his will to be done right here in Windsor? Guys, you would turn the world upside down. This is what he's ordained for us. So Father, I just ask you to do it for your glory. Do it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Bless you. Thank you, Corey. Love you, buddy. Yeah. Hey.